Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. Hello and welcome to the second annual Sir Roland Wilson Foundation Budget Policy Forum. My name is Shane Johnson and I'm one of the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation PhD scholars. As we commence our events today, we acknowledge and celebrate the first Australians on whose traditional lands we meet and pay our respects to the elders of the Ngunnawal people, both past and present. The purpose of today's forum is to promote open and informed discussion of the budget and the budget priorities bringing together the academic community, policymakers, and thought leaders. The forum this year has added importance, occurring at the beginning of a lengthy election campaign. As Secretary to the Treasury from 1951 to 1966, Sir Roland Wilson, of whom the foundation is named, was heavily involved in many budgets. Over his time as Treasury Secretary, Sir Roland made a significant contribution to Australia's economic transition following World War II which included an almost unparalleled period of economic growth and low unemployment. However, despite Australia's economic performance over this period, there, was many, there were many challenges. The 1951-52 budget, Sir, Roland, Sir Roland's first as Treasury Secretary, was regarded as the horror budget. Responding to strong inflationary pressures arising from the terms of trade, Sir Roland advised the government to increase taxes and to cut spending. This was the first time in Australia's history that fiscal policy was used to try and dampen economic activity. By the end of 1951, wool prices had begun to fall and the terms of trade declined, although remained high. But a recession soon followed, which although regarded by many as mild, had an effect on sentiment and confidence at the time. In fact, decisions throughout the period were made with memories of the Great Depression still fresh in mind and at a time of geopolitical uncertainty. Interestingly, an editorial in the Sunday Herald on the weekend before the 1951 budget called for less politics and more policy, following two elections, including one double dissolution and a referendum within two years. You may see some parallels with the more recent times. Throughout his life, Sir Rowland epitomised the values of integrity, frank and fearless advice to government, and with this, a dedicated service to improving the well-being of the Australian people. The foundation, which established from a generous endowment provided by the Wilson estate, honours his reputation and the legacy he left to public policy and to academic study. The foundation engages in a number of activities within the public policy scope space. Notably, in addition to this event, the PhD scholarship program. This program provides public servants with an opportunity to make an active contribution to academic discourse. Further information on the Foundation and the Scholarship Program are available on the website, on the Foundation's website, and it's worth noting that applications for the 2017 scholarships close on the 11th of July, and I strongly encourage anyone who's interested to, uh, to apply. Now, if you would like to uh, use Twitter, we have a, a hashtag, uh, SRWBudget, and we also have a Twitter handle, which is at SRW underscore ANU. I would now like to hand over to Mr. Steve Sedgwick, who will chair today's forum, 
Steve is the Deputy Chair of the Sir Rowland Wilson Foundation and he has an extensive public policy background. He was previously the Australian Public Service Commissioner, a former Secretary to the Department of Finance and a Senior, senior Economic Advisor to Prime Minister Hawke. So it's with great pleasure I hand over to Steve Sedgwick. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Shane. As, uh, as Shane said, this is only the second annual Sir Roland Wilson uh, Budget Policy Forum. What Shane didn't say was that the original, original idea for this forum is actually his. Um, uh, and I really think we should thank him uh, quite sincerely uh, for having done that, as he was uh, showing you quite nicely the, the topic is certainly one that's close to the heart, or was close to the heart of uh, Sir Roland Wilson, who is an uh, eminent Australian, uh, who amongst other things was a very long serving uh, Secretary of Treasury. And the idea of bringing uh, academics and policy makers together to share insights about important policy issues and hopefully uh, each to be uh, enriched by that experience is actually an important underpinning uh, of the work of the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation. Now the forum was hugely successful last year. Um, a fact that I mentioned, uh, not to put pressure on my august panel here, <laughs> uh, but rather to uh, acknowledge uh, how good um, Shane's uh, idea has proven out to be. Because, you know, so far, 100% of the time, it's been really fantastic. <laughs> what, what was that old line about lies, damn lies? And yeah, right. Um, Shane's uh, one of the statistics, who's uh, one of the statistics, he's that too, he's one of the scholars who's uh, close to uh, finishing his PhD, so we wish him um, all the best. And there are a number of scholars, past and present, uh, here with us um, today. Their research has covered a very broad spectrum of topics uh, that departments have agreed are of strategic importance to them. Um, this topic ranged from economic and social policy issues, including really thorny ones like uh, intergenerational disadvantage, to aspects of international law, uh, such as uh, international irregular maritime migration, I wonder why that's popular, um, to the management of military training areas in an environmental sustainable way, and I'm told it can be done, uh, and to the school attendance of uh, Indigenous uh, kids. Now the link to the strategic research priorities <coughs> of departments is very important. The PhD scholarship program that the Foundation supports is not just about building the capability of the Australian Public Service, although it is certainly that. It's also about doing it in partnership with the Public Service. And I acknowledge John Lloyd, the Public Service Commissioner here, who is a, um, a, member of the, a member of the board. But it's also about doing that in partnership uh, with the Australian Public Service um, and to pursue the policy interests that are important to departments. It was hoped that the scholarship program would strengthen the links between the ANU researchers and those who are working on cutting edge policy issues in the Australian Public Service. And it's done so in ways that far exceed anything that Ken Henry or Martin Parkinson or even I uh, thought was possible uh, when this program started five years ago. And, and we have the scholars uh, particularly to thank for that. They've been both creative and enthusiastic in forging those links. Indeed, some have even shown uh, colleagues within the Australian Public Service that there are untapped large benefits to cross-agency data sharing, shock horror, and to collaboration, uh, which uh, may well be changing some of the parts of the culture of the Australian Public Service. 
Actually, Shane has something to do with that, with the work that he's done. But typically, the scholars weren't pushing on a string. Their supporters, both the academic ones and those in the, um, in the APS, and their supervisors, their co-workers, and academic researchers have all proven to be very, very willing collaborators uh, in that venture. And they are to be commended for that. And that brings us to today's panel. Uh, it is a mix of researchers from the ANU, of commentators and of former public servants. Uh, former because, as you know, we're talking about contentious current policy issues and <laughs> public servants need to keep their head down in public forums on such, on such matters. Um, typically, uh, our panel needs no introduction in this town, um, so I will sing their praises, but I'll do it very briefly. I will speak in the following order, and they're from your left uh, across the table. Uh, we have Miss Jan Harris, uh, who's a member of the board of the Bendigo Bank. Uh, she hails as a formerly a deputy secretary from the Department of Treasury, but has been around this town for a bit. Uh, Professor Miranda Stewart, who is the director of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School of the ANU. Professor Warwick McGiven, AO, who's the chair of the ANU Centre for Applied Macroeconomics, Macroeconomic Analysis, sorry, again at the Crawford School. Uh, and for the decade up to 2011, was a member of the RBA board. Dr. Mike Keating, uh, AC, um, who, um, despite his age, I must say, is a prolific <laughs> blogger. Um, <coughs> I remember the days when he was worried about email, but never mind. <laughs> He's the former secretary of the Department of Finance, amongst uh, a number of other uh, uh, roles that he's had, PM&C. Uh, and a number of other, other public policy roles. Dr. John Hewson, AM, uh, who's former leader of the opposition, uh, but he's the chair of the Tax and Transfer Policy Institute at the Crawford School, uh, and he's a member of the board of the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation. And Ms. Michelle Grattan, AO, who's a long-time political commentator, um, currently chief political correspondent at The Conversation and professorial fellow at the University of Canberra. We're very grateful uh, to each of them uh, for giving us our time uh, here today. They will each speak for uh, five minutes or so. Uh, then we'll have a little chat amongst ourselves um, and then we'll be taking questions from the floor. Now, five minutes is not long, mm -hmm. so you'll probably find that they'll gloss over things that you might be interested in, in which case just bookmark that space and come back to it in questions and I'm sure that we can spend some time uh, expanding if we need to. Uh, and we plan to have you on your way back to your desks uh, well before um, two. Now, it is a somewhat unusual pre-election budget, uh, so we've got lots to talk about. So, Jan, you're up. Okay, thank you. Now, hopefully everyone can hear me. Um, so, welcome everyone. And um, just by way of background and why I'm here, I just thought I'd mention that I used to work in Treasury. And for my sins, I was responsible for managing the budget and many other fiscal updates from 2008 to 2012. And so my first budget was the 2009-10 budget, and as some of you may know, that budget set the record for the biggest deficit ever. So um, I would then, then say I spent uh, the next few years trying to close the gap, but clearly didn't make the distance. And a bit like uh, Shane mentioned before, some of the reflections in the press sound eerily familiar um, in terms of the experience I had. So the commentary about the 2016-17 budget has many, many um, comments that are very familiar. So the long-promised return to surplus has received, receded another year across the horizon. 
Over the last three years, spending cuts have been made, but these cuts have primarily paid for new spending, not to make inroads into the budget deficit. Most of the repair to date has come through allowing revenues to increase as a share of GDP. And as one commenter made the classic P and Zimble trick, the introduction of the company tax has been staggered so that it doesn't cost all that much in the first four years, the one shown in the forward estimates, but it gets a lot more expensive in the following years. So notwithstanding all of these um, critical comments about progress, I can say I, from having tried to put a budget together over a number of years, I can appreciate the difficult decisions the governments face when trying to make the numbers add up. And I'm also thankful that now I have the much easier job of standing up and commenting on the challenges for fiscal policy. But before I do, I'd like to ask, to sort of put it in very simple language, how many of you remember Dr Carl and the 2015 Intergenerational Report? <laughs> One infographic in that set out the debt and deficit problem in a very simple way, and as you can remember, it was a very simple document. <laughs> um, and it said that the government was spending... Well, what the problem was was that the government was spending $1.1 each day, this was in 2015, and each day it was collecting $1 billion in revenue, and the $100 million shortfall was being borrowed each day. And if you look at the spending and revenue numbers in the 16-17 budget, not much has changed since then. In 16-17, the government expects to spend around $445 billion, and just for your information, around 60% of that goes on social security, welfare, health and education. And it also expects to collect $411 billion in tax receipts, with a fair swag of that collected through income tax. So the government has to borrow to cover the deficit of $37 billion. And while it expects to get to back to surplus by 2021, and frankly those numbers we'd call balance in the world of um, fiscal policy, um, the medium-term projection suggests that it may struggle to stay above the line after that. And I suppose the question is, does it matter if the government lives beyond its means, which was the premise of the IGR? Fiscal po policy is a vital tool for governments to achieve its economic and social objectives. And over the past 20 years, the stated fiscal strategy of governments has been anchored by the policy of returning to surplus over the medium term. And that, that's because fiscal sustainability is important for macro stability, for providing a buffer against potential economic shocks, for reducing the degree of uncertainty about future policy settings, and in those ways improves overall economic performance. So even though since the 70s the budget bottom line has varied from year to year, governments have been prepared to address deficits and return the budget to surplus. But for all the rhetoric and efforts to date since the GSC, governments have definitely struggled to shift the dial on returning the budget to surplus. So this government took some steps in the 2014-15 budget, but they have been proven hard to land. And the overall impact, um, but little has been done since. This makes, and the, the 1.7 billion that um, they did in sort of net policy decisions over the forward estimates has barely made a dent in the growth of spending over the forward estimates. So it is no easy thing to deliver on a credible path and some of the challenges are that combined the with the slowing pace of economic growth, rising expectations of government and a constrained revenue um, base, that really goes to the heart of what choices are going to be made about the size and scope of government. What should governments fund? What should citizens fund? So I welcome you to the discussion today about the vexed question, how governments can promise to add more to spending or reduce taxes, but also promise to get the budget back to surplus. Thank you. <laughs>
Miranda. <laughs> Thank you, Steve. Uh, so, looking at, uh, I, I'm going to spend my five minutes saying a little bit about the, the tax measures in the budget, and we might come back to some of these things in, in questions or Q&A from the floor. Uh, I think in terms of the overall uh, budget balance question, the comment that I might add to Jan's introduction concerns the revenue forecasts. Uh, so on the revenue side, uh, certain revenue stream projected, as Jan had said, and it does depend, as you would know, on a range of important economic assumptions. We've got PFO tomorrow. I'm sure those of you in the Treasury here know what's in that document. Uh, in particular, I guess the iron ore commodity price assumption and the wage, uh, the wage assumption driving income tax uh, collections uh, might both be a little uncertain. Uh, we, we had someone do a little exercise looking at growth trend uh, over the past few years and revenues. Uh, and it, it seemed that the, the revenue projection was optimistic relative to trend. Uh, so that, that's sort of one general comment there. In terms of the detail or the specifics of the tax measures, I guess the context for this budget uh, is uh, also the broader picture of uh, tax reform uh, or not. Um, and I know the Treasury worked very hard a bit over a year ago now in, in producing the Resync discussion paper, still a substantial paper, and of course we still have now a bit over five years ago uh, the Henry Tax Review as a, as a framework for thinking about the tax system in the longer term. Uh, when the Henry Review produced that report, uh, it was about the time that Jan was <laughs> running budgets inside the Treasury, uh, and there was a big fiscal deficit, as she's explained, or rather larger than it had been, and the global financial crisis. And it was always understood at that time that tax reform was in a way not affordable. Uh, and I guess five, six years later, we have that broader context still. We still have this ongoing deficit. We still need to think how could we manage a broader tax reform process. Uh, so on the specifics, I guess you have the enterprise tax plan uh, as a kind of a centre for personal, small personal income tax cut for um, full-time average uh, earnings, uh, which is actually really full-time male average earnings. Uh, female average earnings are a good $10,000 below that tax-free threshold. Um, sorry, below that uh, $80,000 threshold. Um, so that tax cut, $4 billion over four years, uh, costed. Also, of course, the small business, uh, unincorporated business cut and business investment incentives and the company tax cut trended over, over 10 years. Uh, we might, I, I guess we might come back to the question of the company tax cut. Uh, it's been very controversial. Uh, I'm really delighted, I should say, that the Treasury has released uh, the detailed modelling report and the other consultancy reports on that. I think that transparency is really useful. And we've had an interesting contribution now from the Centre of Policy Studies in Melbourne as well, uh, querying how, how we measure the benefit of a company tax cut. Um, I just might make a couple of comments on that at this stage. First is I just uh, came back from an Asia-Pacific tax conference in Korea, and when you talk to people in the region about Australia's plan to cut the company tax rate from 30 to 25 in 10 years' time, eight years' time, they just look at you and say, that's so high. <laughs> uh, so 
just to bear in mind, uh, international tax competition is a very real thing and the need for capital investment is something that Australia really does need to grapple with. I don't think this issue is going to go away. There's a real question of timing uh, and that, that cut has been deferred out uh, and possibly that's, that's a good thing in any event. Um, a couple of other uh, specifics then, the, the superannuation tax reforms, uh, I've gone on record with colleagues saying I think that these are quite fair and sensible measures uh, that are not retrospective, uh, that actually uh, do set the super system uh, on, a, on a better path for fiscal sustainability and also fairness. Uh, I do think that those super tax uh, changes, although they sound big, or they sound like there are lots of them, you might say several of them. Actually, the dollars are still in a way marginal on the, on the edges of that system, which is very substantial uh, in terms of dollars and, and fiscal cost, uh, and potentially more reform uh, should, should be coming. Um, on um, the, the, the only other thing I guess I would say on, on corporate tax, uh, the base erosion measures, the multinational tax avoidance measure, the diverted profits measure, Australia is definitely way ahead uh, of, uh, really ahead of the game on those measures, uh, moving ahead of other countries. That, that is, that's possibly a good thing. I'm not necessarily criticising that, um, but we should be aware that we're kind of uh, moving ahead in terms of trying to firm up uh, the tax base for the corporate tax. I'll leave it there, Steve. Okay. Well, thanks, Steve, and uh, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I think it's a good idea to think about this budget in a, looking at it from the bigger context. And the bigger context is that over the next decades, there are very major environmental and demographic challenges. Uh, and we're going to need to generate economic growth to be able to afford the adjustment to a rapidly changing world. Um, so looking at the budget, there is a clear vision in the budget or a clear vision statement about focusing on jobs and growth. But there's almost nothing about the environmental challenges we face, given we've signed up to the Paris Agreement. Uh, there's some very large policy changes that are needed. Um, and so there is a debate about whether or not that's even given anywhere near enough attention in the budget. Uh, the demographic issues are touched upon. Miranda's mentioned the superannuation changes, which I think were, were quite reasonable. But there are some very big demographic adjustments that we need to do far more than has been done. Um, my bottom line from this budget is that um, the government is just too large. Uh, wealth and innovation occurs in the private sector. It doesn't occur in the government. The larger the government, the more taxes you need. You're taking, levying these taxes on a society and you're pulling funding out of the parts of the economy where you get innovation. And so the problem is if this is a budget on, on growth and jobs, the size of the government has to be somehow uh, brought back in. Um, why, why is rising debt a problem? Well, ri rising debt's a problem particularly for Australia because we're very vulnerable to external shocks. Uh, and so it's good to have the fiscal reserves uh, in place so that we can respond if needed. The problem with our future with large debt, though, is that it does imply future taxes. If you have a lot of uncertainty about who will pay those future taxes, then the incentive to invest in quite innovative technologies is actually reduced because it could well be that when you get the return to those technologies and those investments, because the government needs higher taxes, they're going to levy taxes on you. So the after-tax rate of return expected could be, quite, could be quite low. And I just have to point to the mining tax as an example of, of retrospective uh, taxes where you've levied a tax on, on an investment decision made 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, this does hinder uh, rates of return to investment. The, the, second, the second reason it's an issue is because 
uh, if Australia's debt reaches a certain point, our funding, uh, international funding agencies will change our risk, country risk rating. Higher, higher risk means you pay a lot more for borrowing on foreign markets. Australia is a net borrower and has been for its entire existence. Uh, higher cost of borrowing means a lower capital stock. A lower capital stock means lower productivity of labour, therefore lower real wages, a lower standard of living. So there's a lot of reasons, both the expected taxes as well as the uh, need to fund offshore, that getting the, the debt down uh, in, sustain in a sustainable way is very important. How do you do that? Well, you don't, I don't believe, you don't do it by making very heroic uh, forecasts of nominal income growth over the next five to ten years. Uh, at last year, nominal income grew at 1.6%. The budget has it rising very quickly back to 5%. That's an assumption that's built into the Treasury methodology. I don't know that in the current environment that's actually a very plausible set of assumptions. If it stays at 1.6% or even rises to 2%, that's a massively different revenue base for which you then have to find the resources to finance the, the ever-growing government. So I think what's needed now is some simple rules. Politicians won't make the tough choices. But if you can put in place some simple rules, it may actually bring down the size of government in this country. One simple rule could be you can only finance current expenditure out of current revenue. So I think that's a quite a sensible rule. Uh, it's okay to borrow for infrastructure projects because if you borrow for an infrastructure project that's been genuinely assessed as having a positive rate of return by an independent agency, that generates a revenue source which can then be used to finance the borrowing. And so you're matching the, the timing of the returns on infrastructure with the re re requirements for servicing the debt. So I think if you can somehow either formally separate current and, and capital expenditure, or even informally have a rule that you can only borrow if it's an infrastructure project. So how, how, does that, how do we apply that criteria to the current budget? By my guess, and, believing that, and using the forecasts that are in the do documents, there's about $125 billion worth of borrowing between now and 2020. And there's about $50 billion worth of infrastructure if you add it up and depending on how you define it. So we're exceeding that rule by more than double in this current budget. The government is borrowing too much to finance things which don't generate a rate of return. Uh, so the bottom line, I think, is, is and I won't touch on tax reform, but I think tax reform is an essential part of adapting to these big challenges we're facing. Whether it's environmental taxes or other taxes, there's a big debate to be had, and I don't think this budget goes anywhere near uh, what's needed for the the requirements of Australia over the next two or three decades. Mark. Okay. <clears throat> um, thanks very much. I've been asked to talk about the budget and fairness. Well, I'll start with the obvious observation that uh, fairness is in the eye of the beholder. <laughs> um, so what you'll get is the eye of this beholder. Um, uh, my first observation would be that um, if you focus on what's been done in this budget, and I think it does pass the fairness test. Um, for those who want, would want to fail the budget, it wouldn't be on what's done, but on what hasn't been done. Um, you know, the areas that haven't been addressed. Uh, to enlarge on that, if we just run through the things that have been done in the budget, which are critical to its fairness. The first one's been mentioned already, that's superannuation. Uh, the superannuation charges, changes, I think, do eminently meet the fairness test. Um, I just say in passing that I don't know why the threshold uh, for the 30% tax rate is 250 and not 180,000. That would be a bit fairer in my view, and it would correspond with the present tax uh, structure. Um, 
Beyond that, I personally would prefer the Henry approach, which is tax at the marginal rate, less a fixed percentage. Uh, that would be fairer again, and it would get rid of the need for all these caps and so on, which uh, complicate things, including the administration. Um, second point on the fairness uh, agenda is the assistance to young unemployed to make the transition to employment. Now, no one should pretend that this sort of thing is easy. We've been into labour market programs for a very long time, but I think it's certainly w worth making the effort. The third thing is the crackdown on tax avoidance by foreign companies. I can only say in passing that uh, I remember when I was Secretary of the Department of Finance, the then Tax Commissioner always came to the Treasurer with a great deal where if you gave him some more staff, he'd more than pay for it with savings. I monitored it over the six years I was Secretary of that Department and he never once delivered on my promise. <laughs> um, uh, Person, I think the budget would have been a bit fair if they hadn't terminated the deficit repair levy. After all, all the other people who made contributions to reduce to the deficit repair, they haven't got their money back before the deficit's been fixed. Um, so what hasn't been done? Uh, let me start in the welfare area. Um, there are two areas of really glaring unfairness in my view. One is new start payments. New start payments are a bit less than $37 a day. The single-age pension rate uh, is $62 per day. And I find it very hard to justify the fairness of that differential. Um, that's personal view, of course, but uh, I don't know anyone in this room who could live on $37 a day. Um, second thing is that the is rent assistance. Yeah, I think most of the studies, including by welfare people, is that the age pension's adequate if you own your own home. But uh, if you don't own your own home, the rent assistance is frankly inadequate. Um, and thirdly, in the welfare area, the welfare agencies over the last, well, since the GFC, have had their budgets very heavily cut, the various welfare agencies. And they're often seen as lobby groups. They will say, actually, more importantly, uh, people who provide services like legal aid and so on. Uh, and this is, uh, they're really struggling, I think. Um, a third priority, which, another priority which hasn't been addressed is employment participation. Um, the participation rate for men who left aged 25 to 55, who left school early, didn't complete school, is 18 percentage points lower than the participation rate for men of the same age who uh, completed school and or got a, a tertiary qualification. In the case of women, it's 22 percentage points lower. Now, we know we can get tremendous results from extra expenditure on training with those groups. We've seen it. Uh, we could wrap it massively with participation. This would be good for equity, also be good for the economy. Um, Finally, very quickly, uh, I think the way the government approached the budget, it had very limited room to manoeuvre <coughs> to address these sort of issues. It took too many options off the table at the very beginning. Uh, and finally, then, for those who want to...
create a more egalitarian society, and inequality is arising in Australia as well as in other countries, by, but nowhere near as much. For those who want to raise a more egalitarian society, I think they need to understand that this will involve a bigger government. Um, uh, my own view is different to Warwick's. I think the, you know, the balance between the size of the government and taxes less clear cut. Um, I certainly think you could have, but we should have a conversation. Start, you know, tax reform really should start from the conversation of what sort of society we want, and what role does government play in that, and then we work out the taxes after that. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Steve. Look, this is obviously a very political document, this budget. Um, it's, um, not, not to say, of course, that it can't have very significant economic and social consequences, nevertheless. Obviously, the government has given up on having a sensible, uh, significant reform package in response to this budget. So it just had a number of objectives where they had to tick the box, in my view, politically. One is they had to be seen to be doing something about budget repair. Uh, secondly, they wanted to neuter some of the, or, or steal some of the policy positions that the ALP had, had, had put on the table and were prepared to argue. Uh, thirdly, I think they wanted to be seen as fair, pick up Mike's point. Fourthly, there were some pressure points in tax they had to deal with. Bracket creep, uh, an uncompetitive global, uh, uh, corporate tax rate globally, and I guess the multinationals not paying tax. And finally, and probably most importantly, they wanted to put a platform in place that they could run to an election on. Now, if I go through each of those boxes, there's not too much done in genuine budget repair. <coughs> the percentage of, uh, of fiscal consolidation relative to GDP in this budget is very small, about 0.2 of 1% at best. Uh, and, of course, the outcome is largely assumed by favourable assumptions. We've heard from uh, Warwick the assumptions about nominal GDP growth, but you can look at wages, you can look at iron ore prices and so on. They're all quite optimistic. And I think they all miss the significance of the economic challenges for this country, not only the structural issues that Warwick mentioned in terms of you know, having to deal with climate change and so on, but we're going into a world of very flat global growth for maybe 5, 10, maybe even 15 years, what people like Larry Summers are calling a growth recession, where the growth rate in the industrial world won't be much more than 15 to 2% for most of that period. It's a very different world. And Chinese growth is much weaker than we've assumed and, and so on. So there are very big constraints on on that. In terms of fairness, I mean, they've ticked that box, but you can argue the case. Uh, in terms of tax, obviously, they do a little bit on bracket creep, they do a little bit on the corporate tax rate, but over a 10-year period, because as was said, you, you can't afford to pay for it in the next uh, four years, but you push, the, push it out. Uh, and um, in terms of multinationals, of course, they've given the Tax Commission a whole lot more staff, which I'm sure <laughs> Mike's conclusion is right, they won't bring you the dollars that they accept expect they will. In fact, the tax office has done a really good job of shedding staff <laughs> over the last few years to make itself much more efficient. So the real issue is the political strategy of jobs and growth. I don't know how many times you've heard that already, but you're going to hear it a multiplicity more times between now and the end of this election campaign. And to me, that was very difficult because you talk about the transition from a, a resource boom or construction boom-based economy to whatever, and then you don't say anything about the whatever. You don't know where the growth is going to come from. You don't identify industries or jobs or talk through how the, uh, the responses will, the expected, you expect from this budget to actually generate that, the investment, the growth and the jobs. 
And one of the surprises, of course, one of the big challenges is, of course, responding to climate change. We've got Paris commitments of 26 to 28% reduction in emissions by 2030, which I think is about half what they should be. But having said that, um, there's nothing much in the budget that deals with it. I think climate change got mentioned in 308 pages of the doc budget documents. And yet, if I look at that sector, energy, uh, renewable energy and uh, energy efficiency and some alternative technologies, there's an area where you can have an ideas boom, you can have an innovation boom, and you can actually create quite a lot of jobs quite quickly. And yet the only significant decision in the budget in relation to that area was to take $1.3 billion out of ARENA, the Renewable Energy Agency. So a lot of inconsistent messages coming out <coughs> of this budget, a political strategy that I think uh, should get them back, that's their aim, just uh, tick enough boxes to get across the line. Uh, I can't see Shorten getting the 21 seats he needs or even 14 for a, for a hung parliament. So in those circumstances, I think that's uh, the real risks to my mind are medium-term economic risks. The global economy, as I said, will be much flatter. But both sides of politics have made very, very large expenditure commitments that carry in in their volume into the 2020s. None of those are actually funded in the sort of budget documents and assumptions that you've seen. Things like national disability, national broadband, further school reform, health, defence, very big commitments. Uh, climate change, very, very big commitments. All unfunded going well into the 2020s. And, uh, and they're going to do it, as Pat says, I think. They're going to bring the budget under control without significantly raising tax or, <laughs> you know, um, it just doesn't add up. Thank you. Michelle. Well, I'll uh, make some general remarks about the budget and uh, then throw forward uh, a bit to the uh, election campaign and, and beyond. <coughs> the budget seems to me something of a paradox. It was in itself not very popular with the punters, but I think it has set the government up reasonably, and I stress just reasonably, not better than that, for the election campaign. Putting the government's economic pitch in the form of a plan, I think, gave it greater coherence than it would have had otherwise. While some measures have encountered blowback, notably the superannuation changes, on, a, on the whole, I think the budget did not contain initiatives that outraged voters. Nevertheless, the public brought a somewhat cynical eye to the exercise, and the essential poll found 20% only approved of the budget, 29% disapproved, and 35% neither approved or disapproved. And this 35% was higher than in previous years. Essential noted that the 2016 budget was rated higher than the 14 budget, but lower than the budget last year. The coalition's natural strong ground is economic management and therefore its growth and jobs mantra I think is not a bad one. But I do think it is struggling on the fairness and equity questions. There are different views. But uh, it was inevitable when its tax assistance was concentrated on companies and as far as individuals were concerned, those well up the income scale that uh, there would be questions on this fairness issue. And even the growth story has some problems. The more scrutiny this uh, tax centrepiece has come under, the more it looks like a damp squib. Work by the Grattan Institute, which is on the Conversation website today, shows that for some 
$50 billion in company tax cuts over a decade, ordinary Australians shouldn't be holding their breath for a big payout. The government said that the 10-year tax cut would boost GDP by about 1%, but it did not put a time frame on. The story is complicated, as the Grattan Institute shows, but the bottom line is this, and I quote, the net benefit to Australians in the real world will be only about half of the headline benefit, that is the 1%, and it will be a long time before we're any better off at all. The Grattan people suggest about 25 years, which is a fair while to hang out for it. To an extent, however, the budget has disappeared after those early days of excessive repetition of the plan. That is the nature of election campaigns. They spray all over the place, and of course we've been talking this week about border protection, penalty rates, and David Feeney's uh, multiple houses. Superannuation stayed around, but uh, as an area of difficulty for the government. Election campaigns are usually disjointed and full of hyperbole and byways, and uh, an eight-week one gives a long time for diversions. The media intensity reflects the 24-hour news cycle and the demand for ch uh, talent on the TV news channels is enormous. But in the traditional media, that is newspapers, TV and radio, I think the analysis is probably weaker than it was a few years ago uh, when you had more uh, specialist policy people um, weighing into the argument. So we have more coverage of everything these days, but I think it is thinner coverage. Now, it's worth remembering what the government might have taken to this election. A few months ago, we were all talking about major tax reform, and we remember the flirtation with the uh, tax mix switch, and of course that came to nothing in the end. Another, perhaps less talked about, retreat was on federalism. Tony Abbott set up a white paper process. Well, the white paper is uh, turning grey or yellow somewhere, but uh, it's certainly not <laughs> seeing the light of day. Now, does this mean that reform is just too hard? I think the answer is yes and no. While the Turnbull government opted for a small target uh, strategy, Labor produced a lot of policy. And some of this actively then encouraged the government to follow the same route. For example, the superannuation changes is, is uh, a case in point. But on negative gearing, the story went in the other direction. Labor's bold initiative on that meant that the government thought that to maximise its chances of attacking Labor, it had better do nothing at all, even though it had earlier intended to look at some of the excesses as it uh, described them. More broadly, I do think reform is very difficult in our political system these days. And just uh, a couple of reasons for that that I'll mention. I think for one thing, what needs to be done is not as obvious as in some former times, notably the 1980s, for example, when it was quite clear the Australian economy, sooner or later, and, and uh, uh, desirably sooner, <coughs> had to be opened up. 
Secondly, these days the agents of opposition are better organised. Every group that would lose from some change has access to huge publicity in the uh, media cycle. And thirdly, uh, the traditional media in particular is less into serious policy and so much harder to mobilise uh, as an agent of change and uh, persuasion about the desirability of changes. Now, briefly turning to the coming, coming weeks, one would be bold to make uh, predictions so early in the campaign. Nevertheless, I'm going to take the risk and hope if I'm totally wrong, you won't hold me to it. And I do stress the situation could change. But despite the polls, I uh, agree with John that I think the most likely scenario is the return of the government. And at this stage, I think that's a view that's uh, shared uh, by Labor strategists privately. One reason is the distribution of marginal seats and the margins by which they're held. That tends to favour the coalition. Other, another is um, that I do think it'll come down in the last days to a question of a, a contest of, uh, of leadership. And despite his uh, failings and falling popularity, I think that Turnbull's better place to win that. Quite a few people might take the view that Turnbull, having been Prime Minister for only some eight months, has not yet had a, enough time and therefore should be just given uh, uh, another chance. They might be disappointed with him, or we know they are disappointed with him, but not ready to throw him out. Now, if Turnbull does win, the margin by which he wins is critically important. A strong margin would see a lot more of the real Malcolm. I'm not quite sure what the real Malcolm would look like, but nevertheless, uh, he'd be out there. A very narrow margin, and the going could be very tough for the PM, certainly for the real Malcolm. Tony Abbott has been good in this campaign, though some think that the very frank uh, Peter Credlin appearing on Sky News is his alter ego and uh, certainly she's laying down a few markers. If Turnbull was returned with a small majority, I think it's very likely the Conservatives would make life extremely difficult for him, a situation that, uh, given his short fuse, he might find hard to handle. I personally don't think that Tony Abbott could make a return to leadership, but I do think that uh, he probably, in his heart of hearts, thinks it's not impossible, whatever he says. <laughs> um, and he wouldn't like you laughing. <laughs> now, if uh, with the polls as they are, there's been talk of a hung parliament as a possibility. Uh, this, I think, is the last thing most voters would want. But uh, one interesting thing is that key independent contenders, Cathy McGowan, who's already an MP, and Tony Windsor, who's trying to get back, won't say where they would go, which side they would favour to form a government uh, with a hung parliament. So there's, uh, that's an interesting uncertainty. Also, I think an acknowledgement that um, uh, people are nervous about the, the, uh, a hung parliament and, and these people don't want to uh, alienate some of their potential supporters. One thing we can be sure of is if uh, 
there was a Turnbull government, it wouldn't have control of the Senate. This is despite those voting reforms. They're partly uh, offset in, in this election because it's double dissolution with a low quota. And therefore, while um, a number of the, the um, rats and mice, if I could call them that in a totally neutral <coughs> but, uh, sense, Loving sense. Um, conceptual <laughs> sense, um, while they might go, there'll be uh, another lot of rats and mice to be dealt with. Um, with what seems, and again I stress at this point, a less likely Labor win, we'd have a, a mini-budget within three months of the election to rearrange priorities. Another budget, another thing to look forward to, surely, perhaps another forum. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, uh, thank you one and all. Um, I want to leave uh, time for questions from the floor, um, so we'll be quick. And I'll just ask one, maybe two questions of the panel and then we'll uh, throw it open to you. Um, I'm struck by the fact that everyone believes that, or just better, everyone believes that this budget has done too little um, on fiscal repair. I'm also struck by the fact that uh, growth is by no means out of control. Um, inflation is low, uh, monetary policy, if anything, is focused on avoiding deflation uh, rather than containing inflation. Um, the task of demand management, if anything, has fallen to fiscal policy in a way that, <laughs> certainly for my generation, um, was uh, a relatively new thing. So uh, one question, I guess, is, well, how quickly do we need to do the fiscal repair um, noting that if we move too quickly, we might in fact un undermine the growth of demand, um, undermine consumers' spending, undermine business investment, and therefore slow the rate at which um, growth and inflation erode um, the budget deficit problem that we begin with. So how quickly do we need to address this? And the second is that uh, we're all pretty good at identifying things that... Um, the budget missed. So how do we repair the budget? If the size of government's really too big, but we've got these you know, big things coming down the track, um, and we should be reducing spending overall, um, then how do we repair the budget? Well, I might throw to you first, because I kind of guess you'll live with your chin. Yeah, um, OK. Um, so I'd turn, firstly, I think Mike made a reasonable point that you've got to make the decision on what is the role of government before you embark on any of these decisions. Having said that, I think there's a lot the government does, whether it's drought relief, whether it's um, parental leave, there's a lot of policies where the government's absorbing all of the risk in the system, whereas you could design something like income contingent loans, a la Bruce Chapman's approach, to take some of the things off the balance sheet of the government. So, for example, drought relief. Uh, you could set up a system which was self-financing. So the government's role is to fill in the market failure that banks aren't financing farmers who go through a bad period and then have a good period. So the role of government there is to create the, the loan system where, in fact, farmers can borrow against future potential income and then pay it back when their incomes rise, just like the hex of financing of higher education. So I think there's a lot of government where the government bears too much of the risk for society and it should be spread 
a bit more across uh, those who benefit. There are some equity issues for low-income people, I understand that, but I think you, you want to rethink that. Um, even if you don't change the tax, the level of taxes as a share of the economy, you can change the mix quite effectively to get better growth. Less, less efficient taxes could be replaced by more efficient taxes. So the composition of spending, the composition of taxes, all needs to be looked at. But I think the budget deficit itself also has to come down. And it has to come down in a very clear and bipartisan way. One of the big problems with, with politics as it is today is that just about every big issue, whether it's climate change, whether it's energy investment, whether it's, it's um, Australia's role in the world, if you don't have a bipartisan approach, the policies themselves cannot generate the long-term thinking that's required to solve those problems because you can't tell which side of politics will be changing to change the policy. So when it comes down to it, all investments, investments in human capital and physical capital, require some degree of commonality in the political system. And that's what's missing, and I think that's the problem. So I definitely have very clear budget deficit reduction targets. I'd try and get government down to, let's say, 22% of GDP, but where there's a role for infrastructure investment, which could mean 2 or 3% of GDP on top of that, as long as it's financed uh, in a way that generates returns, or as long as it's actually invested in a way that generates returns to cover the financing. So we all have our own opinions on the role of government. I think that's where you start. I've got a very clear view. It should be there where the market fails, but no more. I'm struck by the fact that in recent years, uh, you know, the big unfunded commitments have been bipartisan. So both sides of politics have been looking at things like the NDIS mm. um, and uh, education, Alagonski, and you know, kind of all of that. So what's missing in this debate that uh, we, we seem to have all care and no responsibility about you know, being able to manage the longer term? So I'll yeah, make one point and then... So I think that yeah. in Treasury, I know, I know we've been doing in the past when I was there that a lot of um, reporting or speeches that were made and, and one of the things that we... In, in those speeches that was talked about was, was the issue about community expectations and, the, you know, this sense of growing expectations about what governments can deliver. And you, you can see that in the way in which spending has evolved over time. There's definitely a much greater amount of money that goes to individuals than would have been, say, 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah. And, and so my perspective on it is that it's very difficult in the, the, the political debate to manage or to actually think about how you manage those community expectations because those have been the things that have affected the way um, each of the parties have responded to, um, you know, whether or not they're able to deliver the spending cuts or whether or not they want to provide additional spending. So there is a challenge there about how you actually set what is it that, that individuals should be bearing and what, what should government be doing. And I, don't, I think part of the problem is, not problem, but part of the challenge is how you actually have a, have a debate about that because basically, um, it, you know, community expectations are high about what government can live, deliver and I totally agree that risk is being shifted from, from the private sector to, to um, the government. I think the other thing that gets a bit lost in here is thinking uh, too about the growth side of the, the way in which the, the budget works, you know. So how well are we delivering some of these programs and, and how are we thinking about productivity in, in the longer term? So we so know we've got a demographic challenge, we know we've got a participation challenge and we know we've got a very significant productivity challenge. So how is the budget sort of contributing to thinking about those things? Can I? Yeah, look, um, <coughs> I'd just like 
got to pick up from where Jan was in a minute, but I'd like to go back to your original question about the rate of repair of the budget. Um, I mean, I, I think it actually ought to be a little bit faster than this, but I'm not, it's much more what I'm concerned about is the longer term outlook. I mean, you know, this, this budget, if you took their own figures, uh, it hardly gets back into surplus before it goes back into deficit again. Um, so really what we need, more than the rate of repair, I'd suggest is what we need is a credible rate of repair, which extends beyond, you know, the early 1920s. We need a long-term uh, outlook, uh, which we didn't get from the intergenerational report. I mean, basically, it pointed what we had an unsustainable path. Um, so then, how do we get it sustainable? Um, I think it, when I, I talked about the sort of society we want, I mean, my take, you've only elaborated my take on it, but I think the sort of society that most people are signing on for does think we have responsibilities for disabled people and to give them opportunities. It has responsibilities for public health and so on. Um, and uh, I do think that there are ways you can make savings, but I can't for the life of me see why tax concessions never get properly looked at. And then, and even if you've got any money out on, we've got a tax ceiling of 23.9%. So if we actually got, if we actually save some money on tax concessions, we might exceed the 23.9% cap, which is ridiculous in my mind, because the tax concessions are no different to expenditure programs, except they're usually, un they're not cash limited, and they don't get proper scrutiny. Um, I think on infrastructure, Warwick, uh, I've spent a fair amount of time looking at infrastructure programs and projects, and I can guarantee you that I can't find 50% of the current spend which has ever been supported by a cost-benefit study, or at least not one they're prepared to make public. Um, you know, we have wasted more money on infrastructure in our economic history than just about any country in the world. Uh, you know, we've got dams that should never have been built, etc. Um, the railways, most of them should never have been built. Um, so, you know, I, I, I like your idea of taking infrastructure off the budget, if I can put it that way, but only if it is genuinely subject to evaluation, and that ain't going to happen. <laughs> um, look, uh, you can make, and we should make savings in the delivery of health and education and so on, but even if I build in, and I've tried this, mod, you know, modelling it, if I build in a sort of long-term efficiency dividend, by, and that, that's not the sort of efficiency dividend they run in the public service at the moment, but a genuine where you really uh, plan reforms in the delivery of education and health, if I built it in so I knocked one percentage point off their trend growth rate every year for the next 30 years, I build that sort of thing into those areas, I still, to my mind, I don't see how we meet the thing without removing the cap of 23.9%, which is what's built in at the moment on taxation revenue. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, we'll probably add 1% or 2%. That would still put us lower than, than New Zealand or Canada, way below the UK and well below West, Western Europe countries. Uh, so that's mine. Okay, Miranda, then John. 
Thank you. Well, I'm reminded of a comment that was made about the US government some time back, which I think is still accurate, which is that it's a big insurance company with an army <laughs> attached. And we're probably just an insurance company with now a few submarines. Uh, um, there is this question of what is the role of government and in today's world and if you look forward to changes to the way people work over the next 20, 30 years, changes to the age of people over the next 30 years, innovation we're going to need in education, uh, training, services of the economy, transition, uh, I would argue that actually it's pretty important that government play that insurance role. Uh, I think what we've got smarter at, to say something good about policy development, uh, is thinking over the life course. And I think uh, policymakers and researchers have got smarter at that over the last uh, couple of decades. And that concept of people moving in and out of government engagement with the government and the market over the longer term. Uh, most people don't stay in the welfare system. Most people move in and out very quickly through the welfare system, through their, through their life course, for example. Um, so when we're thinking about uh, on, the, on the revenue side, how do we do fiscal repair? Uh, I think we probably have a revenue problem as well as a spending problem, I, but I do accept that we have a spending problem, I just don't claim any expertise in the area. Um, on the revenue side, I, I think we have to come back to these big picture tax mix switches at some point, and the GST is an obvious element of that, or carbon emissions sort of taxes uh, elements of that, where we can raise some revenue in those areas. We shouldn't underestimate, though, that a personal income tax, especially personal income tax on wages, that's progressive, is actually an efficient tax. Uh, if you break it down and think about individuals, not households, uh, and in particular, you think about women's workforce participation and work participation of older workers, uh, you need to think about individuals in that income tax system, and if we can uh, reduce the effective marginal tax rates and encourage those workers back into the workforce, we'd be better off. We might need to do that by broadening the income tax base a bit. And one other comment that I, it is disappointing, although perhaps not surprising, that the Federation white paper <laughs> is turning grey. Uh, the, it's, the national government has, a, has an obligation to lead national tax reform. The states will not do it without the national government. And I think there is still pretty wide agreement among economists that uh, there, is, there are efficiency gains to be made in reforming state taxes. Uh, and we really haven't seen that yet. Uh, and it would be very nice to see a national government that would lead that. Uh, by some sort of uh, agreement and, and revised agreement of co uh, cooperation with the states. Thanks. Uh, just a couple of quick points. Uh, look, I think you've got to recognise that the budget repair task is a medium to longer term structural challenge. It's got to be set in the broader structural constraints of a very significantly different world economy, demographic trends, the climate change responses and so on. And uh, secondly, I think um, Obviously, you need to begin that process by a, a, a mature debate about uh, the role of government, uh, what we expect government to do, uh, what services we want them to provide. And I was very disappointed with the Federation review because I had hoped that once and for all we'd have a review of the structure of government that to uh, the extent possible allocated responsibilities to a particular level of government, looking to take the other level of government or governments out of that process. And then the third stage, because I was hoping, was a sensible tax reform discussion against that sort of assessment. 
uh, which looked at uh, the simplest and fairest, most effective way of doing that. And some of the ideas about income-dependent loans and so on stick out as obvious things you could do in, 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 overall, in that overall uh, context. Um, and second thing is, um, I've argued for a long time, we've got to split the budget into two bits, the recurrent part and the, and the, uh, and the uh, capital part, the infrastructure part. Um, the recurrent part you should look to fund, uh, obviously run at least a balanced budget over the cycle and recurrent expenditure. On the capital account, uh, infrastructure projects, they should be genuinely independently assessed by a genuine independent Infrastructure Australia, which is very transparent, very publicly accountable, uh, and, uh, and does re release the cost-benefit assessments of the projects that come across its desk. And that's the basis on which then you'd look at how you'd finance that. Uh, on the capital account, I'd introduce an infrastructure bond today with our AAA rating. Uh, we'd be able to borrow 30 to 50-year money at a very low coupon, um, and uh, we'd raise tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of None of that, of course, can go into consolidated revenue. It defeats it's got to go into a separate fund professionally managed to take debt and equity positions, public-private partnerships and so on, to fund the infrastructure projects that are assessed and, 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 um, and, uh, and rated and ranked, if you like, by infrastructure, a reformed infrastructure Australia. My final point is, is, look, if this is all too hard for our current politicians or prospective politicians, maybe we need to think of an independent fiscal authority. I don't think we should let the politicians at all that we've had off the hook here because I do think that uh, when the coalition government came in, the scene was really set to tackle the uh, fiscal problems. Uh, a lot of what the coalition had been talking about had been in, in these terms. We, we ridicule it a bit now, but debt and deficit uh, were the catch cries. And really, that government failed to seize the moment. Uh, it, in fact, misjudged things. Its rhetoric was really bad. I think Joe Hockey's age of entitlement uh, language lifters and leaners and so on was all wrong, did not bring the community uh, in behind the task. And of course, the 2014 budget was just ill-judged in uh, both the preparation beforehand for the, the job ahead and also the mix of measures, the, the whole unfairness issue. So I think there was an opportunity to put fiscal repair much more at the centre of things. It was uh, bungled partly because of uh, bad judgments, but also, let's face it, because of the arrogance that the government brought to the task. Okay, thank you. We have uh, 15 minutes uh, for questions from you. Who'd like to start? Up the, about halfway up. And is there someone on this side? Who we'll asked the next question? There you go. Thank you very much. That was uh, a very interesting discussion. Um, I'm Alison Bailey. I work for one of the central agencies. Um, <laughs> remain nameless. A few of my colleagues are here. Um, I was interested to pick up on Dr. Hewson's point about the whatever 
which is the undefined where we're going next. For my whole life, I've grown up um, hearing that the market will sort it out. Um, and perhaps for the second half of my life, hearing that our economy needs restructuring or structural change. And I guess my question is, when I look at my young daughters, is how many generations do you think it's going to take to do the restructuring that's required and to move our economy onto a footing where we can actually afford to fix the environment, look at climate change and possibly put longer term issues in front of shorter term financial gain and growth which may or may not equally benefit all of our society. Uh, given our system that's dominated by very negative short-term opportunistic politics, <laughs> you're going to have to wait a very long time before you get the sort of adjustment that you need. And the only answer, I think, is, is, is leadership in that context. Look, it's so, it's, we, uh, so many people say to me, why don't we have bipartisan support on an issue as big as climate change? It transcends multiple generations, you know, it's uh, something they should just get together, put the best team of people around it and get on and do it and do it together. We do it on defence and national security. Um, we probably don't do it on too many other areas. Um, and um, you, that's, until you get that sort of uh, political system, we are going to have this very, you know, short-term churn of of ideas and you say it, I oppose it, and nothing gets done and it's very difficult, as Michelle said in her piece, to actually embark on a reform agenda. But I nevertheless think that if uh, you know, a rejuvenated Turnbull finds the real Malcolm after the election, <laughs> he could make a stand in a leadership sense and set a medium-term objective that is deliverable and just drag everyone else along with him. I mean, whether the party would support him and the electorate would go with it. I personally think the electorate is tired of the short-term game. And I think they really do want medium to long-term issues dealt with. And uh, I think uh, in that sense, they'd cut somebody like Malcolm a fair bit of slack to do that as long as he was actually doing it. Don't put them all on the table and then just take them all off because that's not going to do it. All right. So I think it's a mistake to think that we're in some world and all of a sudden we're switching to a new world and at some point we're going to converge to this new world. That's not the way reality is. Reality is a the evolution of a a planet of 9 billion people changing all the time. I mean, the, the population changes, the demographic changes, billions of workers entering the global economy. We are not going to settle down to some sort of new model over the next, or any of our lifetimes. This is in a continuously evolving system. So what's key in that type of world is to have flexibility, to invest in human capital so you can adapt, to realise the comparative advantage of your country, which can change over time, but it's not that the government has to sit there and say, OK, we're in 2025, this is where we have to be. That's not the reality. The reality is you have to put in place systems where the market comes to help where it can and where you have to intervene where there's failures and you have to let the system evolve in a, in a, in a reasonable way. So that's hard for a central planner. Central planners hate that sort of world because they can't centrally plan. But I think that's the reality we face. Comparative advantage is the key driver of where we're going to end up, and if we try and cross our comparative advantage to destroy our comparative advantage, it's going to be bad for the Australian people. So I think you just have to go with the flow, basically. But you need leadership, as John says, but you do have, a, you have to have a vision, but you don't have to have a concrete plan.
Okay, I think the next question's over here. Uh, thank you very much for the talk, everyone. Um, while some of the economics of the tax and stuff went a bit over my head, uh, one of the important, as a young voter, uh, climate change is a very like pervasive issue for myself, and we've just seen massive like bleaching on the Barrier Reef. We're seeing these fires. We're seeing the hottest year every single year, every single year. Um, how do you think this needs to be addressed in the budget in terms of like an economics, like uh, an emissions trading scheme, or do you think we need to put more money towards it in terms of the infrastructure financing you were talking about and borrowing? Um, and because we, we like from from a perspective from the public, I seem to be it seems to be quite complacent, and we seem to be we take we talk about meeting all these targets since like the 90s and Rio and Copenhagen and all these things, and we're never meeting any of these targets. Yeah. It seems to be. I was wondering what what the plan should have should have been maybe in this budget to have addressed it, and uh, what 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 could happen. Okay, I guess that's you, Eric. Well. Um, it's McKibben, Wilcox and Hybrid, actually, um, for those of you who have been listening to me harp on for the last 20 years. The basic problem is we have to manage uncertainty and we have to do deep cuts wherever it's low cost to do it, but we shouldn't pre-commit to a deep cut if it turns out to be expensive because the system will crash. So you need to have a system where you balance the environmental benefits with the economic costs. Now, a lot of environmentalists don't like that concept. The reality is if the economic costs become too great at a point in time, the system fails. And so you have to take that into account. The key issue with climate change isn't how much we emit this year, it's what the cumulative emissions are over a period of time. So we need the flexibility to be able to create a system which is very long term, which creates institutions for managing the risk and the uncertainty that puts in place a carbon price with a century duration so that you can make investment decisions as a company or an individual and drive the innovation towards a low carbon future. You don't get that with a short-term carbon trading system that will be abolished next week if the election occurs. You don't get that with the systems that people are currently talking about. You don't get that by saying we will have a 50% reduction in emissions no matter what it costs by 2030. That is just a crazy policy because if it's not put in place correctly, it will fail at the next election. So to me, it's the sustainability of the economic and political structures that are needed. And we're not even talking in that space in any of the proposals of any of the political parties in this or many countries. Uh, I was one of those people with a stupid objective back in 93 of cutting emissions by 20% by <laughs> 2000 off a 1990 base. Because I thought it was achievable given the position of our natural resources in this country, solar and sun and wind, and the technologies that are available to produce baseload solar 24-7 with storage <coughs> cheaper than you can do it with a coal-fired power station. And that transition's pretty easy. But it sat on the deck for several decades in this country, hasn't been picked up, hasn't been facilitated through the process, hasn't been funded, and, and so on. And so there's a lot of changes you need to make. If you want to have an ideas boom, it's not just having the ideas, it's actually being able to commercialise them. We've, we've led the world in so many innovations in this country. You know, Wi-Fi is a classic example, Google Maps, is plastic skin, cochlear implant, dozens of them. We've commercialised few of them over the years because our system is pretty much anti-innovation. I mean, we're cutting education funding, we're cutting research funding, you know, we've we don't recognise the significance of individual excellence and in research and so on. There's a whole host of reasons. The funding system, most of our super funds just hug the stock market indices here or overseas, don't move too far off the mark. They don't look at uh, more you know, longer term, riskier investment structures. There's a whole lot of layers in here which the government could easily address, not in terms of actually picking winners and not in terms of actually pouring particular money 
into particular areas, but create the environment in which some of those things can actually happen. And that's the way I think we could do it. When I go back to my 93 policy and look at the targets we've got for 2030, my view is we've lost 30 years of new industries, new growth, new jobs, and we're, you know, we're trying to play catch-up now between now and 2050. Well, there's a cheerful thought. <laughs> uh, <laughs> up the back. Um, and then uh, down here in the front. Hi, Francis Fosterthorpe from a nameless central agency. <laughs> I was interested in getting the perspective of the panel given the critiques that were made of the growth rates built into the budget, of the idea that you might have some independent assessment of the revenue side, and if anyone wants to pick it up, um, Dr Hewson's comment about the potential for an independent <laughs> fiscal agency. Can I make a or comment about okay. So, this, this is a question really about uh, fiscal institutions and budget institutions. And we have actually had some innovation in Australia. We now have a parliamentary budget officer that we didn't have before 2012. But our PBO does something rather different than, for example, the UK Office of Budget Responsibility. So that UK office actually itself does um, the economic assumptions and, and the forecasts, whereas the PBO here uses, is required to use the Treasury assumptions, as uh, I'm sure you know. So there is an interesting question as to whether you might want to uh, do some work to establish an institution that either audits or tests assumptions or, or perhaps itself has the forecasting capacity and everyone kind of uses that. It's pretty important that everyone across government uses that, that number, so at least you can make comparisons about policy change. Um, John and I have had this ongoing debate about uh, an independent fiscal uh, institution that might actually deal with taxes and spending. I mean, in my view, that's a democratic function, and it's pretty important that we actually maintain, as part of our long-term sustainability of our systems, that we <coughs> maintain our democracy. Uh, and and so I, I think those things have to be in the parliament, but we, we possibly could do better at supporting the decision-making uh, of our legislators in both tax and spending. The Labor Party so, has oh, actually yeah. said that it'll, if it gets into government, it will have the forecast done by the Parliamentary Budget mm -hmm. Office rather than the Treasury, which is um, quite an interesting and, and uh, idea which is open to pros and cons, I think. So, looking at the PBO, I mean, um, so I was part of the this team that put the PBO together, and so it, it did make quite significant changes to the way in which we thought about um, for, you know, putting, um, particularly it was there a lot to address the issue of election costings primarily, but also to look at the broader um, spending trends and trends in government. I think that you have to be a little bit careful assuming that because you get an independent authority, you're going to get something better, um, because... You know, so the, the um, Office of Budget Responsibility in the UK just took a significant amount of um, growth out of the UK's um, budget and that caused them a great deal of grief. And, and so they, after having given it to them the prior period, so it wasn't as though the, the PBO, sorry, the Office of Budget Responsibility can, is, is all that more skilled at managing the ups and downs of the economic forecasting process. So I think you have to be... You, there are some genuine value out of coming out of the... Parliamentary Budget Office to give more transparency and... Um, but the other thing that I think you also... Um, which will be tested tomorrow is... <coughs> other countries haven't got the Charter of Budget Honesty and that requires a, an independent assessment of the forecast for... Um, which will be coming out tomorrow. So, so there are different fr 
ways of, of institutionalising these things, but I th think you have to be careful of thinking that somehow one's <coughs> going to be better than another. Okay. Well, Could I just follow up on that? I mean, that's an absolutely critical point. The point isn't who's doing the forecast. The reality is it's really hard to forecast the future. And if you design a revenue stream which is inconsistent with the spending stream under 15 different views of the future <laughs> but is okay under one, then you've created yourself a really serious problem. So it's the uncertainty in the whole design of the, the timing uncertainty on the revenue side and the spending side. The spending tends to be a bit more predictable, the revenue stream a little bit less predictable. Maybe you want to split up the you know, particular program has to be funded by something which has the same degree of confidence on the revenue stream and, and, and be a bit more skillful in designing the budget. But Treasury does a good job doing their forecasting. I would say that I wouldn't necessarily want to move it out of Treasury. I want to redesign the way I think about fiscal policy because we don't know what the future holds. Okay, I think we're up to our last uh, question and then I'll hand over to Jenny Chang to take us out because I know you've got to go back to work. Hi, my name's uh, Tamara Cutcliffe. Um, I'm not, not in the public service anymore. Um, Jocelyn Borgnon from Canada has been doing a lot of work with um, building resilience in communities and, and trying to get more citizen to government and government to citizen engagement. Um, She's, she's been, I uh, guess, trying to get them to understand that there's not going to be more resources, there's going to be less, and that the community needs to help uh, informing, I guess, priorities. Uh, Martin Parkinson was very vocal uh, when he was uh, the under-treasurer, and uh, I guess um, Malcolm, in whatever shape or form, has also been trying to be a little bit more vocal in, in, in bringing a r around a change in, in community expectations. I just wonder what, what Treasury's doing in that area. So I'm no longer part of Treasury, but, <laughs> but I am aware of um, Jocelyn Borgen's work. And, and, and really part of the issue, I think, is that a lot of the, and which she touches on, is that a, a lot of the policy issues that you have to, to deal with these days are a lot more complex than they would have been in the past. So, you know, if you, if you look back to the, you know, hesitate to... Um, talk about Sir Rollins, but if you look back in that time, a lot of the um, policies that governments were implementing were relatively straightforward, whereas now you're dealing with a lot more complex issues about, you know, entrenched disadvantage, the issue about how you do best, you know, good education, how you build a trained workforce. And so I think what that, that ability to handle the fact that you can't, there's no easy solutions to most of the issues that we're addressing these days is something that... I think it's very important to have a broader community conversation about because often, um, certainly from looking from within government, um, there is a tendency to think that you can find a solution, but often the solution is actually something that has to be brought through from the community. Okay, we're pretty much out of time. Mike? Um, I can't resist saying something about the Canadians. I've, they invited <laughs> me there every year for 10 years, you know, consecutively, to talk to them. Uh, particularly Jocelyn Borgon. Um, they're fantastic people at discussing problems. Um, and I'm in favour of us having a discussion about what sort of society we want and, and so on. But yeah, I wouldn't like to finish up like the Canadians because they're very bad at doing anything about it. They just have another round of discussion. They're actually talking to me about adopting the Australian model for the budget. You've just worried their life out of you. <laughs> Right. Uh, any last comments before we close? Okay. Thank you. We've got to get you out of here because I know you've got to get back to uh, for uh, work. Uh, Jenny Chang is going to close. <coughs>
Uh, while she's coming to the podium, can I please ask you to thank our panel for being great. Thank you, Steve. My name is Jenny Chang. I'm one of the Sir Roland Wilson scholars in my final year study, um, working on the Chinese economy. Um, I hope you all agree with me that we've been very privileged, privileged this afternoon. Um, this budget forum is truly unique, bringing together such a distinguished panel and providing such invaluable insights into the budget and getting and being offered some um, predictions about the election campaign and election outcomes is very enticing as well. Listening to the discussion, um, I was reminded of my time at the Treasury before I commenced my PhD. At one point, I was working on um, economic forecasts um, for the budget. So while I was across all the intricate details about Australian statistics and forecasting process, it wasn't necessarily easy for me to pull together all the salient points of the budget, let alone all the big picture and big issues associated with the budget. So indeed, um, that latter point is what I found most rewarding about this afternoon's discussion. So over the last few weeks, we've all become very familiar with the facts and figures in the budget. But listening today to um, how the broader context of the budget, including the international growth context and domestic challenges such as um, climate change and demographics, this is where we can truly understand what the budget means um, for, for us as an individual and also as the Australian society. And I think this is particularly important in an election year where all the spin and politics of the campaign trail could blur important messages or even misrepresent them. So on that note, could I formally ask you again to thank the panel and thank you all very much for coming. We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.